Well, greetings, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural live live stream, live broadcast of Atlas Information. I am Atlas Alex, and I will be your host this evening. And um, just to uh, make sure uh, we have everybody there, if you can uh, chime in in the chat, uh, we'd like to see whether or not we're reaching anyone at this point. <laughs> this is the first time we've ever tried this. We're using a, uh, a setup that's supposedly streaming live simultaneously to both YouTube and Facebook. Hi, Donna. I see you're watching us on YouTube. Is that right? It's just you and me right now, I think. <laughs> Um, so it looks like we have, uh, two viewers at the moment. So, um, yes. Okay. So we have Donna on YouTube and, uh, yes, they will slowly come. If you build it, they will come. We have a like on Facebook. So presumably someone is watching us on Facebook. Uh, we won't dwell too much on the, uh, technology. I hope. Um, I hope that uh, everything is uh, working as it should. <clears throat> um, this is a this is a new service for us. We, this is a new thing for us to do, but this is something that we feel that we have to start doing on a regular basis. Um, because, well, there are limits to what we can talk about um, on Facebook, and um, not least because of the censorship. I mean, we have had many, many, many comments deleted. Um, we have spent an exorbitant amount of time writing articles, lengthy articles. Some of them are near book length. And the purpose for us writing these articles is to be able to share them um, on Facebook when people uh, post questions or uh, make posts and we want to be able to share with them the elaborated information that they uh, need to read. And we can't do that these days because when we try to share those links, Facebook deletes our posts and says that we are and on the basis that we are breaking the, we are violating the, um, <clears throat> the community standards by posting, uh, essentially posting spam. That's why our comments get deleted. So we've been posting links, um, replacing the dot in the URL with an asterisk or something. Uh, hopefully people can work that out and cut and paste and, you know, put in the dot in their own browser and reach our articles that way. Um, but it's clear that um, these platforms uh, are very much geared toward the dissemination of certain information and the blocking of other information. So having a live stream and being able to um, speak directly to you folks um, is perhaps a way to get around that because they can hardly censor that which they do not know we're going to be speaking about. And their algorithms, their supercomputers are not so savvy yet as to be able to uh, censor live video, maybe after the fact. I know that uh, YouTube has been known, their algorithms have been known to 
um, go in and um, <clears throat> uh, how shall we say, if not outright delete videos, but certainly not promote videos in the algorithm. As you know, when you go to YouTube, if you, if you are a member, if you're not, the more likes and views that videos get, they get bumped up into the uh, Google algorithm. But also, it's based on the content of the video. Um, many YouTubers have uh, mentioned that, they've noticed that, that certain videos are um, promoted and others aren't. And a lot of it depends on the content that's in the video. <clears throat> in fact, Donna says here in the chat, yep, they took my friend's channel down because he was spreading too much truth. Uh, it goes without saying that the there are powers that be and the technocracy is definitely uh, a part of that uh, process of uh, subverting the truth twisting it, corrupting it. And in many cases, we've made this point many times. Um, the corruption of truth by the omission of truth. There's nothing more dangerous than something that's 90% true. I mean, if you really meditate on that, um, you, will, you will discover how insidious that is. Because something which is 90% true will ring true in your heart, will ring true in your consciousness, unless you are very, very, very astute and very, very tuned in to the details. But if you don't have access to those details, if you haven't been made aware of those details, or if you haven't meditated, and you feel overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly that that which is being shared with you is ringing true in your heart, you will say, ah, this is the truth, this is the truth, because it rings true in my heart. And well, that is one of the most potent weapons that the Black Lodge has in manipulating humanity, but in particular, manipulating those on the path, those self-styled initiates, those seekers, um, because we are <clears throat> attuned to tuning in to our heart for checking in with ourselves to know certainly anyone who follows the path of gnosis anyone who seeks self-evident experiential knowledge knows not to simply listen to the mind listen to the intellect or listen to what other people say and take what other people say at face value but to check in with ourselves. And when someone is speaking to us and we check in with ourselves and rings true what they're saying, well then, it goes without saying that we begin to trust what they say. We begin to accept what they're sharing with us. And if what they're sharing with us is 90% true, all the better, right? But what about the other 10%? What about the 10% that they're leaving out or changing or twisting or corrupting in ever so slight ways? And yet those slight omissions or um, changes 
can make all the difference in the world. So it's important um, when we uh, deal with any information out there, whether it's, but especially the internet, but of course anywhere for that matter, there are very well-developed organized groups whose modus operandi, if you will, is disinformation. And the Black Lodge is clever and it is subtle. It is not to be trifled with. It's not to, uh, to be taken lightly. So let me ask just very quickly on just technical housekeeping. Can everyone hear, hear me all right? How is the sound level? Is it okay? Can I get some sort of uh... Yes, they especially know how to manipulate those whose trauma hasn't been healed because people who suffer, people who are in suffering are vulnerable. I hear a great, I hear you fine. Perfect, thank you, Donna, thank you, Kimberly. Um, and then I have an, it's okay, <laughs> okay. Um, it's very good here, okay. Um, I, I can, uh, right now, the way everything is set up, the microphone is a little bit far away. I could try to get closer to it, but I think right now, if uh, unless, someone unless someone complains that they can't hear, please do. If you can't hear properly, please do. Try maybe turning up the volume first. If that doesn't work, then I will try to adjust the microphone. It's just that I the microphone is on an arm and it's extended all the way right now, so I'd have to do some some fancy footwork here to uh, to adjust it. Um, but coming back to that comment of uh, Donna's there about someone who has who has trauma that hasn't healed, someone who's living in suffering, and they're dealing with um, past pain, which is reliving itself over and over. That individual is like a wounded gazelle on the Serengeti. And to the Black Lodge, just like to a lioness on the Serengeti, a wounded gazelle is a target of opportunity. Um, very often, we like to remind people about the different levels of nature, the two natures of nature. And we must never become so romantic about mechanical nature that we forget that it can be heartless completely lacking of compassion. The lioness on the Serengeti has no compassion for the gazelle. She can't. She has her cubs to feed. She has her pack to feed. She is the huntress. Her job is to hunt. And she has a limited amount of energy with which to do that. So if a target of opportunity presents itself, a wounded gazelle out in the open, the lioness is going to pounce or the cheetah and of course at that level of mechanical nature that's perfectly acceptable that's perfectly fine and we have to remember who the egos work for the black lodge works for mechanical nature their, their divinely ordained purpose is to test 
and challenge and tempt and corrupt and make us fall. And if we are vulnerable, if we are wounded, if we are weak, they, like the lionesses, will come for us. And all the agents of the Black Lodge out there in the world seek out weakness, seek out vulnerability. Just look at the umpteen numbers of so-called gurus and so-called faith healers and uh, Christian pastor, pastors, the, uh, the pastors of the mega churches, the born-again Christians, and their mega churches and the money for example that they rake in from their followers these followers that are home alone watching on television many of them elderly their their spouses have passed away their loved ones have passed away their families have put them away in old age homes or have, you know they come visit them every now and then maybe call on the phone but they're very lonely and alone and vulnerable trying to make sense of their life trying to face the impending darkness, which is fast approaching the end of their life. And those pastors, like the lioness on the Serengeti, speak with forked tongues exactly what those vulnerable people want to hear, make them feel good, make them feel better, make them feel comforted, and take their money, their retirement money, and take their energy and take their consciousness, basically, stealing away what little they have left in this world and what little time and opportunity they have to work on themselves, stolen away and replaced with empty belief. And yes, on some level, you can say, oh, well, but you know, if they're giving them comfort, right? They're comforting them. It's good, you know, they're being, it's, it's compassionate, it's kindness. We must never forget the expression, what it means to kill someone with kindness. Kindness is a word which gets bandied about a lot on the internet, on Facebook. You'll see, you'll see it a lot, how important kindness is. And kindness has its place, obviously, of course. But kindness without consciousness is no better than any other dogmatic belief. The idea that kindness above all else matters. What is love? Is love kindness? One must truly meditate and contemplate. And through one's experience of love, real love, pure love, one knows that love, like the two pillars of the tree of life, love is severity and mercy. Is severity kindness? And when is severity kindness?
So Eduardo asked the question, love and wisdom. So we often say love is severity and mercy applied unconditionally with infinite wisdom. That's, lo that's the love of our Divine Mother. That's divine love. That's pure love. So yes, but that wisdom, where does that wisdom come from? That wisdom, we call it gnosis, experiential knowledge, comes from past experience, yes, but also comes from our innermost, from our Divine Mother. If anyone can teach us about true love, pure love, it's our own Divine Mother. It's her love for us that we should take as the example in our lives on how to love others. And just look to your own life. If your life is not filled with uh, if your life is not filled with uh, both severity and mercy, then um, it's, it's not possible. It's not possible that you have a life which is only mercy. That doesn't exist. We cannot have, you cannot have an arch with one pillar. It takes two pillars to form an arch. And in, incidentally, we just made a post about that today, the, uh, the relationship between the arch and the ark, and the pillars of Jacquin and Boaz, severity and mercy, masculine, feminine, the balance between the two. So when you look to your own life and look at the lessons and many of the lessons that you've had to learn and many of the lessons that you have yet to learn, and they're hard lessons, But if you reflect on that, if you really truly reflect on that and look to those lessons, those hard lessons that you've had to learn in your life, <clears throat> you realize what a blessing, what a boon those lessons were. They were difficult lessons to learn. But where would you be had you not have learned them? Look around, look around you in the world today. Look around the young people today in particular, the ones who were uh, coddled and bubble wrapped and uh, given participation awards, and the ones who grew up expecting everything to be handed to them on a silver platter, the ones who were denied the hard lessons in their youth are now growing up as adults and facing a world, a hard world. And a lot of them are lost. They haven't been prepared for the hardships of the, the world ahead of them and the life ahead of them. And certainly they're not prepared for the times that we are in and the times that are still to come. We are living in difficult times, no question. And 
the challenges of the times that we live in are, uh, yes, um, in many ways they are a crisis, crises, and in many ways they are an opportunity. And that's, I'm sure you've heard this before, the, uh, the Chinese character for uh, crisis includes the character for opportunity. It's embedded. And um, Chinese characters like are essentially hieroglyphic, at least in their origins. Um, they're symbolic. And so by being able to see the character and recognize that within crisis exists opportunity, that's like in the Tao, where in the yin and yang, each opposite contains the opposite within itself. <clears throat> but that still doesn't change the fact that we are in difficult times and the challenging times. As challenging as they are now, um, they're only going to get more challenging. And those who are being spared the tough lessons, well, they won't be spared the tough lessons for long. They, they will Sooner or later, they will have to face them. They will have to learn them. And if they don't, those who do not learn from their mistakes are destined to repeat them and repeat them unto oblivion, unto the downward spiral. These are the times that we are living in. That's the nature of the Kali Yuga. It's the great reckoning. It's the destruction of humanity, yes, and it's the great selection. Well, who does the selecting? How does that selection work? Each and every one of us, each and every one of us are the arbiters of our own fate because each and every one of us, our karma is in our hands. Our future is in this present moment. And whether or not we want to remain attached to what is and, what's, and what was and what's been, or whether we are willing to surrender. And surrender who we are, who we think we are, who we believed ourselves to be, and surrender to who we really are, that higher self, that true self, the innermost, the essence, which is longing to come through us into the world and do the great work that they are here to do. And by great work, we don't mean some megalomaniacal, grandiose vision of global change. No. The great work is simply to be. To be or not to be. That is the question. But for so many of us, moment by moment, that's a tremendous question. It's a tremendous struggle. Just in the lives that we live, the workplaces that we go to, the people that we deal with, the media, the government, 
and these global crises and local crises, whether they be real or manufactured or some strange hybrid of the two. It's not easy to be. But that's the great challenge. That's the great work of our time. And it's through the being, through that process of being, that the details and the nature of our work, that great work, reveals itself through us. And when we sit and observe ourselves and observe the greatness coming through us and recognize the source of that greatness, then we know our place and we know our purpose to be a vehicle, a vessel, a messenger. Um, if our innermost being can be said to be the right hand of God, if you will, then our place is to be the gauntlet on that hand. And there is nothing that can, there is no, there is nothing that this world can offer which can substitute the feeling of peace and joy, contentment and satisfaction, the fulfillment of one's purpose, of one's being. And we can see that all around us. We can see those people who constantly have to serve or money or validation or whatever it is that they're seeking. They constantly have to seek something from outside of themselves and it's never enough. And they need more and more and more and more and more and that's because they're not connected to that inner source of light, which if they, if they only surrendered to it and they allowed it to come out and flow into the world, all of their needs would be satisfied. All of their desires would evaporate, their worldly desires anyway, because that deep longing can only be fulfilled through being, only the being can fulfill that longing. It's like love. Only love can be love. Only love can love and only love can fulfill love. Lust can't do it. Desire can't do it. Money can't do it. Fame can't do it. There's no other sub, there's no substitute. So, we mentioned this, and uh, we mentioned that uh, the love, the nature of love, uh, we learn the nature of that love from our Divine Mother. And this is just our article, um, O Divine Mother, Here, out, here Art Thou. And this uh, article, we wrote this on the one-year anniversary of the death of our biological mother. And it's a tribute both to her and our Divine Mother. And it's a very personal testimony in a way, but it's also a very universal testimony um, because in this article we reveal, for example, the 
incredible um, capacity for the Divine Mother to orchestrate on our behalf. And the example that we use is the bounty, the mutiny on the bounty. And you may or may not know this, but the mutiny on the bounty, before it was a book, a novel, and a famous novel at that, one of the great American novels, it was a it was a real true historical event. The characters are perhaps fictionalized in the telling of the story, but it's based on real events and their real names. And in this article, we point out how their names reveal the nature of the, the message, the lesson that's being taught to us, the allegory. But just comprehend that this allegory is not being made up by some author, some writer. This allegory was written in flesh and blood and bone and wood and musket barrels and cannonballs. And what is the evidence of this? Well, the captain is William Bly. And William Bly is Bill B. Lie. A bill is what we call a law. But what kind of a law? It's the law that men write. Bill Belie. The laws of men belie. Laws of men are dishonest. The laws of men corrupt. The laws of men lie. The opposition on the bounty, the leader of the mutiny, his name is Christian Fletcher. What is a Christian? Christian, someone who supposedly follows Christ. And a Fletcher, that's the name given to the vocation, the ancient vocation, of one who attaches flights on arrows, the feathers to arrows that give arrows their flight. Christian Fletcher, one who follows Christ and gives flight to arrows, or one who follows divine law, or gives flight to divine law, puts divine law in motion. So the captain of the bounty is Bill Belie, the laws of men Belie, and the leader of the rebellion, the leader of the mutiny, is the divine law which gives flight, Christian Fletcher. These are real names writ large in the history of humanity. Who could have, who could have orchestrated that? Who else but the Divine Mother? And then we look at where they were going on the bounty. When you hear the word bounty, what can you possibly think of other than abundance and the voluptuousness of nature herself, of Mother Nature? the bounty that she gives all of us. And what was the mission of the bounty? The bounty's real mission was to go to Sri Lanka 
the island of Sri Lanka and bring breadfruit. The British uh, Empire felt that uh, breadfruit was to be an important staple in the empire. Breadfruit. Bread as in mana from heaven. The fruit. And Sri Lanka means resplendent island. So the bounty is charged on a mission to get the mana from the resplendent island of Sri Lanka. And in the process, those that follow divine law and give divine law flight commit a mutiny, a rebellion, a great rebellion against the laws of men which belie. And this story so compelled the, uh, not just the author who, who wrote it, whose name eludes me actually, because frankly, as you can probably tell, I attribute the story and the greatness of the story to the Divine Mother, the one who wrote the story in flesh and blood and bone. The author who dramatized it, he was like a reporter, you know, a docudrama perhaps. But the great mutiny, the great rebellion was embodied there in that story. And it so compelled the readers of the day, and it so compelled the Western psyche since it first appeared, that it has been turned into film, I think no less than four times, including once with Marlon Brando, once with Mel Gibson and, uh, and Anthony Hopkins. Um, and it is a living, breathing word of God, a living, breathing scripture writ large in life, in history. And it reveals to us all the work that we are here to do. And it is a work that more and more people are beginning to feel. And it is that feeling, that waking up, that people love using that expression. People keep waking up to the, uh, the for example, the elites and how the elites are controlling the world and the, the COVIDiacy or the COVIDocracy, whatever you want to refer to it as. Um, people are waking up to that and waking up and what they are, are feeling deep down in themselves, the longing and the impulse to perform the great rebellion, to do and commit a mutiny on the bounty, a mutiny against the laws of men, which belie. Because we know we have all been living under very repressive sort of new regime a new set of rules and a new set of um, demands and circumstances, and they keep adding to them over and over again. 
and many people are feeling this urge this 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 impulse from deep within themselves to commit a mutiny against that to rebel against that to say no i'm not going to wear a mask no i'm not going to get vaccinated no i'm not going to believe in your delta variant and your epsilon variant and people have pointed out there are many many letters in the alphabet for them to go through but there's a problem you see the mutiny on the bounty is an allegory for a rebellion which takes place within ourselves which takes place on the bounty our bounty our nature the bounty that we have first and foremost is this body this personality this mind these emotions these are the bounty which were given to us by, me by mechanical nature, divine mother nature. And with that bounty came, yes, uh, a bounty of egos. That those entities which we created, those entities which test and try us, and try to corrupt us and tempt us. And they infiltrate our mind and they create these laws of men. They want to dogmatically adhere or rebel, as it were. And if we focus on rebellion outside of ourselves all the time, and we say that what, what, if we take that impulse to commit the mutiny and we and we allow our egos to focus that out there instead of in here then what happens are we accomplishing the work the ego is the black lodge the black lodge is not out there rest assured that all of the forces out there doing all this work against humanity, all this work to, to enslave humanity, rest assured, they're all useful idiots. They're all pawns of the Black Lodge. They are all, to one degree or another, enslaved by their egos. They worship themselves, their I. They worship their desires. They idolize their fear. And they fear us. And they have their elaborate plans to shoot themselves up into space and avoid the Kali Yuga and all the rest of it. I, I, you don't need to hear this part from us. You can get this information from anywhere. <laughs> but the genius, the diabolical genius of the Black Lodge is that look out onto the internet and you see all these people talking about waking up and waking people up by convincing them about how the elite is enslaving them. As, as though that was waking up. As if the mutiny that we have to do is against the elite. 
But that's not the mutiny we're here to do. There are lots of people who are right now planning their lives off-grid to be, uh, and they're, 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 they're everything from doomsday preppers to the people creating intentional communities and going off into nature and creating communes and, uh, you know, new agers and, you know, who, you know, who knows what else. And they're all, you know, creating their permaculture fields and off-grid and they're going to be completely self-sustained and they're going to completely unplug from society and civilization. They're going to go off and they're going to live on their own. They're going to be free. They're going to create their little utopian islands because they're, they are awake, don't you see? They are awake. They see how evil the system is and how the evil and corrupt system is, is um, uh, trying to enslave them and how it's uh, destroying the earth. And they know how to live in harmony with nature. They're going to go and do permaculture and they're going to smoke their weed and eat their mushrooms and take their psychedelics and practice their shamanism. And they're going to worship nature, idolize nature, and they're going to be free and they're going to be awake. And there is an entire other camp, which is a much more pragmatic, maybe even born again Christian or, or Christian or, or whatever religion they may be, maybe even atheist. And they've built their bunker and they filled it with 20,000 cans of Campbell's soup and 100,000 rounds of ammunition. And they have their AR-15s and they have all their different guns and all their, you know, the rest of it. And they're, they're prepared to survive. They say, we know how to survive and we know how to live without the system. And we're ready for the post-apocalyptic world after the Great Reset or whatever. And they think that they're awake, that they know what's going on. And they're prepared and they're shoring themselves up and they're preparing themselves to, to fight the fight against the evil, corrupt regime. But that's not the fight that we came here to fight. Because the evil regime is not out there. And all of that doomsday prepping is just fear. It's just fear. You see, at the end of a humanity, mechanical nature needs two things. It needs to depopulate the planet. It needs to depopulate the planet. This humanity can't keep growing, you know, and at the, at the rate that it's going. It has to be, it, this humanity is far too corrupt to continue. It has to be culled. But mechanical nature still needs a contingency of humanity. It still needs humanoids. Scientists call them hominids. And it needs those hominids to be ruled by their animal natures. To continue to be ruled by the Black Lodge. Why? Because the planet needs hominids to fight each other and to spill blood. That's, a, that's an aspect of humanity, which you can read about if you study um, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff. You can read about that in greater detail. 
but th that relates to why during the end of the Mayan civilization, when the Mayan civilization was collapsing, that the degenerated priests, um, they panicked. And in their desperation to try to get the crops from failing and try to get the, 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 the agriculture back on track, they started doing human sacrifices and spilling blood because their they, their civilization wasn't fulfilling their end of the of the bargain and sharing their their um, their their uh, prana their energy back with the earth. So they thought that if they did human sacrifices and they spilled enough blood, they could appease the earth and they could get the the agriculture to to um, come alive again and sustain and continue the uh, civilization because they couldn't they couldn't deal with they couldn't cope with the destruction of their civilization like so many they can't cope they can't process they can't accept they can't face death and the inevitability of death so in other words at the end of a humanity as a humanity or civilization uh, approaches its end mechanical nature says well we have to depopulate a large percentage and another percentage we have to put onto the path of devolution onto the path of still ruled by the black lodge but not in that way that they're building empires but a much more isolated pockets of tribal survival based um, enclaves of hominids of humanoids these around the world we refer to as aboriginal peoples all aboriginal peoples everywhere in the world bar none were all once members of high civilizations and as those civilizations crumbled a contingency of those populations said to the high priests said to the corrupt governments and the corrupt high priests, the corrupt religions, the corrupt governments, the corrupt societies, the failing societies, they turned their back on it all and said, For, you know what? We know, how to, we know how to live in harmony with nature. We're going to give ourselves back to Mother Nature, and we're going to live in harmony with nature. You guys and your crumbling civilization and your corrupt politics and your degenerated society and your degenerated culture, we don't want, any, we don't want anything to do with that. And they went back into nature. And nature welcomed them with open arms and gave them the tribal impulse, the tribalism, which we all know if we're honest with ourselves, is already running rampant. in politics, in society, in culture. Um, the dogmatic adherence to 
the tribe, whatever that tribe is, identity politics, for example, is, uh, is the politics of division seems to be ruling nowadays. And it's this tribalism that we're talking about expressing itself. The rise in the use of psychedelics, the romanticization of Aboriginal spirituality from around the world, but especially uh, North American native um, spirituality because of the guilt and the shame that is uh, being perpetuated these days <clears throat> upon the, uh, the patriarchy, the white heterosexual male aspect of the population and all of the crimes that the white man um, committed against the North American native Indians as part and parcel of all of that process. The romanticizing of the native North American uh, spirituality goes hand in hand with that. The rewriting of history or the forgetting of certain aspects of history around the relationship between the Europeans and the native North Americans, for example. That history can no longer be discussed openly and honestly in public. It's politically incorrect to do so. It's politically incorrect to talk about how there was no so-called First Nations. There was no First Nation. There were nations and there were tribes within those nations and even tribes within nations were cutthroat and at each other's throats long before the Europeans arrived on the shores. But this cannot be discussed. This is politically incorrect. This is censored now. And it's also politically incorrect to discuss how the, when the French and the English arrived, for example, in North America, Canada, and uh, Northern United States specifically, certain tribes of natives allied with the French, other tribes and other nations allied with the English. Why? Because they saw, because the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and if the Algonquin were allied with the English and the Huron were allied with the French, well, I could get the English to wipe out my enemy then by allying with, with uh, the other Europeans. And one of the first things that the, the uh, natives traded with the Europeans was for was guns. If the native spirituality was this peace-loving, altruistic, utopian world, this, this, this Garden of Eden, which the Europeans came and conquered through bloodshed, and, and uh, that why, why were the natives so interested in guns? Why was that? Guns and horses. Those what, that's what the natives wanted most from the uh, Europeans. And they were willing to trade just about anything for that, including, their, including the slaves that they had. Which is another aspect that, you know, we talk about slavery and the degeneration and devaluation of human beings and so on. Uh, it's another aspect of history that has been entirely um, uh, uh, corrupted. But the point that we're getting at here is that those who rebel against the collapsing civilization, 
and they believe that their work, their their mutiny, is against the outside, the elite, the the, the corruption, the degeneration, and by by creating a mutiny against that, they are awakening in the process. They are in that moment wholly and completely hypnotized by the Black Lodge. That is a trick of the Black Lodge. That is mechanical nature taking hold. That is the divide and conquer which um, uh, you may have seen. We have another um, article which you, well, you may have read it, you may not have not. You may have seen, um, we have a, uh, Gosh, you know, sometimes our articles are just too long, but I guess you guys already know that. I don't know if there's an easy way for me to bring this up on the screen where it's the whole screen. I don't think I can make this full screen. But we've posted this on Facebook um, before. You may have seen it. Um, it is how um, the Black Lodge mechanical nature divides and conquers humanity during the Kali Yuga. On one side, here we have, well, maybe I'll make this a little bit bigger. Who knows how to make uh, the, how do you go full screen on the, uh, Oh, many times on my post from you, LOL. Yeah, Donna, yeah, I, I know. I, I maybe maybe that's why Facebook um, deletes my post as spam, right? Because I do I do I do spam this, don't I? Uh, is it F10, F11? Oh, there's there we go, full screen. Okay. Um if you guys have seen this many times and you guys don't need to be walked through it, just let me know and I'll move on to something else. As you can probably tell, we didn't have much of a plan uh, coming into tonight's uh, live stream. In fact, we're just shy of an hour, so um, we should probably perhaps uh, wrap it up or start, I don't know, take questions or like leave it to you guys if you guys want to uh, open up some um, topics of conversation. Uh, by all means, you know, drop something in the, in the comments. Um, this was really a, a, a test of the system to see if it worked. And I see that we have people from both Facebook and YouTube here, and that's good. Um, I'm glad to see that, that um, both of those um, technologies are working. Um, and uh, what your feedback is, if you feel like this is something that we should do on a regular basis. It's something that's been calling to us to do on a regular basis, to start reaching out and and doing these sorts of live videos. Because, for example, what we're describing right now, what we're describing right now is something that the people who 
Um, perhaps you may or may not be aware of what's happening in the uh, the pop culture world and the cultural revolution and how the SJWs have been taking over properties like everything from Star Wars to Star Trek to Doctor Who to um, uh, and now the latest one is He-Man, the Masters of the Universe. And what they've been doing is they've been in taking these modern mythologies that uh, are really, really important to many, many people because they were formative in the childhoods of many, many people. And uh, the SJWs um, are basically tearing them down, deconstructing them and replacing them with intersectionalism, um, radical feminism, uh, stripping them, stripping them of all of their metaphysical uh, truth and replacing it with um, identity politics and and so on and so forth. And this is causing uh, a great uproar in the community of fans. They refer to themselves as the fandom menace uh, after the uh, episode one from from uh, Star Wars. And um, they are a very vocal group. Now, the problem is, of course, is that if you understand how the Black Lodge divides and conquers in this way, you can see how on the left-hand side of our, of our little um, infographic here, well, the first thing they do is they create this, this, this socialist, dystopian, technocratic, transhumanist, uh, uh, you know, nightmare, and they start deconstructing everything. And they've been going after history. They've been going after religion. They've been going. They've been tearing down statues. They've been going after language. They've attacked the family. They've attacked uh, biology itself. Right, gender itself now is up in the air. Right, it, it's it's. There's no biology anymore. There's no. There's no metaphysical basis for gender or, or anything else. It's all just whatever people want. It's whatever you want. Anything goes. And people are entitled to whatever they want. This is the new socialist utopia that the SJWs and the, uh, the postmodernists um, are trying to uh, push onto the world. And they're doing so, of course, in popular culture. And in, in doing so, they are attacking these modern mythologies and they're tearing them down and they're corrupting them and they're turning, they're degenerating them and they're turning them into... Um, uh, just uh, empty shells of their former self. The problem, though, of course, is the other side. The knee-jerk reaction to that is to rebel against that or say, to hell with it. We don't want anything to do with you. We're going to go off and we're going to, for example, on the pop culture side and the fandom menace, we're, if you're not going to make the Star Trek the right kind of Star Trek, true to the to, to the uh, to the uh, um, the essence of Star Trek, then we're just going to hold on to our physical media, and we're going to watch the old Star Trek, and we're gonna and we're gonna buy the old toys, and we're gonna collect the old stuff, and we're going to you know we're not gonna and we're not gonna have anything to do with the new the, the new Trek at all, and they. Their attachments to the old ways, they're clinging to the physical expressions, to their idols, 
It's a form of idolization. You think about um, this is something that's it's that that many people in the fandom they need to hear, but they don't want to hear because they believe that their their love for these properties is real. But the problem is that their egos have done a clever bait and switch. It's called idolatry. And all you have to do is watch any of their videos on YouTube and they do their videos um, surrounded by, um, they do their videos um, surrounded in the background uh, by all their toys. And let's see, I'm gonna, they do their videos surrounded by their toys. And when you, it's like they have the, people call them their man caves or, you know, what have you, their, 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 I, it's like they have these altars. These altars are filled with their toys, all these characters that they identify with from these, uh, from um, comic books and from movies. And, and you know, when we see them in their man cave, surrounded by their toys, their collections, what we see a, uh, a Buddhist and their altar and all their statues of Buddha in all Buddha's incarnations. Because there are many, 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 many different forms and incarnations of Buddha. I went, I, I went to a, a Buddhist house once to pick up some herbal medicine because I was asked to deliver it to uh, uh, Kenpo Rinpoche of uh, Sambhavad... Um, um, oh, geez. <sighs> Terrible with names. Sambhavada Temple in upstate New York. Buddhist temple, the Kempo there, the uh, the the abbot there requested that I that I deliver that. I was going to retreat, a Gnostic retreat there. And so when I went to go pick up this herbal medicine from this family, they they invited me. They asked me to to come upstairs and and come into their sacred space, their 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 meditation room, their 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 worship room, their and look at their altar. And and their altar and all their different statues of, of Buddha and their golden Buddhas, and they were all gold. And they're like, oh, you look, B Buddha, the B Buddha. And each one, I had to go and I had to go and recognize and acknowledge each statue of Buddha. And it was, of course, it was endearing and charming on one level. Of course, it was flattering in a way that these people were so open and so what's the right expression eager to share what obviously and clearly meant so much to them their spirituality their their religion and that's one can't help but feel kind of endearment to that but it was here it was look at this statue look at that statue look at this statue look at that statue 
it was a, a display. And like in Roman times, when every house had an altar and they had a little pantheon of gods, or in Greek times, they had little statues of all the little gods. And the, the gods were dressed according to the myths. Maybe they had a certain weapon or there's, they, were, they were in a certain action. You can see this if you watch the movie Gladiator. There's a scene where Maximus is praying. And he has all the gods set up in a little, in a little Parthenon. And included in his diorama of, of idols, he has, an, he has two little statues, one of his wife and one of his son. And he kisses them as though they were a proxy somehow. All religion, all spirituality, all myth degenerates and devolves into idolatry. We made a very lengthy video on Star Wars and on what the lesson that the Skywalker saga is here to teach us. It is an unprecedented opportunity for those on the path, especially Gnostics, because there we see in one lifetime I was four years old when I went to see Star Wars for the first time, 1977, in the theaters. And I remember it to this day. But in one lifetime, we have seen the birth, the rise, the golden age, and the fall of a, of a mythology. A mythology which is, for many, their religion. But it's a religion of idolatry. It's a re and for those for whom the Force is a real religion, because there is bona fide religions, Jedi and Sith, both registered in the United States, they are real religions, and they teach the, the, uh, the dogma, the doctrine of both the Jedi and the Sith. And you, can, you can be a card-carrying member of that religion. Um, but in general, the fandom, for the fandom, Star Wars is a religion of idolatry. The people dress up as the characters, right? Cosplay. They go to conferences, they go to Star Wars celebrations in cosplay, and they collect the toys, and they collect the novels, and the novelizations, and the movies, etc., etc., etc. And they, they love... Star Wars, they love the mythology, they love the mythos. But when it gets challenged, when it gets threatened by the SJWs, then they turn to anger, they turn to hate, they turn to resentment. They do all the things that Master Yoda warns Luke about in Empire Strikes Back. What Obi-Wan warns him about. Don't give in to anger. Don't give in to hate. If once you start down the path to the dark side, forever will it dominate your destiny. For, these, for this fandom who claim to love Star Wars so much, 
but their reaction to their mythology under threat is to be angry and hateful and spiteful and 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 frustrated is to actually <clears throat> demonstrate that they don't really understand their own mythology or at least they haven't taken it to heart they think they have but only in idolatry those who worship the outward symbols of things and they mistake the outward symbols for the inner meaning the inner truth which needs to be living needs to be alive in each and every one of us and so we are all being challenged in that way from without that the kali yuga is all about that everything is being torn down everything is being deconstructed undermined and all these things that we hold dear and we have a choice how to face that and is it possible to face that with peace and with calm You may have heard the expression, yes, seriously. <laughs> you may have heard the expression, Samael once said, Master Samael and Bayors once said, uh, we can learn very little from the phenomenon of birth, but from death, we can learn everything. And, um, there is there are few things that will be more powerful to a gnostic to anyone really who's looking for answers than to meditate on death on their own death because to find peace with the inevitable it's inevitable. We all are all going to die. And so is this humanity. And everything this humanity holds dear, to one degree or another, is going to go away. And we're witnessing it right now as we speak. It's being undermined. And it, it has to be. This humanity must be destroyed. And before humanity can be destroyed physically, it must be destroyed metaphysically. This is what it means to deconstruct religion and history and culture and, and all of these facets on which this civilization was built. The family unit, for example, the relationship between men and women, uh, the patriarchy, if, uh, if you wish to use that terminology. But culture, religion, uh, science itself, has been already undermined since the enlightenment because the science that we the science that we have today is materialist science it's not pure science and as we can see in the media politicians and reporters and people in charge of the narrative have taken over science ah yes 
and money and dollars. <laughs> the economists, the accountants, we, sh we, shan't, we shan't forget our friends in the accounting departments and in the finance uh, departments. Um, so clearly there's a degeneration and an undermining that has been taking place across the board. Art, art was attacked with the invention of art for art's sake. And the idea that art, that true art has no purpose, can have no purpose. As soon as art has a purpose, it's no longer art. This is a postmodern, this is a modernist and postmodernist view of art. And yet the greatest works of art, high art, absolutely have a purpose to transmit universal truths in a beautiful way, in a compelling way, in a timeless and universal way, in a way such that 500 years later or a thousand years later, people are still finding and still compelled by these works of art. They still find within them those, those truths, calling to them, beckoning to them, to come deeper and deeper and deeper, to engage with that art. That's real art. That's true art. Art is one of the four pillars. Religion, science, art, and philosophy. The four pillars of civilization. And those four pillars rest upon a foundation of gnosis. Self-evident experiential knowledge. But of course, the postmodernists have gone after knowledge, have gone after truth. According to the postmodernists, there is no truth. There is no objective truth. Everything is subjective. Everything is language. Everything is opinion. If everything is opinion and theory and, and, and language and conjecture and belief, then there is no objective truth. There is no objective reality. Then everybody's uh, theory and opinion uh, is on the level and it's all worth the same thing. That's nihilism. That's the ultimate expression of atheism. If you undermine, if you eliminate from people the possibility to even know or experience objective truth, objective reality, then for lack of a better expression, now you've completely enslaved them to the matrix. This, their, their subjective reality. They're entirely trapped from that point forward within their own mind, within their own emotions, within their own sensations. And they are lost in that nihilism. If you take away the foundation of gnosis, of objective truth, objective reality, of, ex of self-evident experiential knowledge, you take that foundation away, the pillars have nothing to stand on. So, of course, all the pillars become corrupted. They become shadowy former representations of their true selves. And individuals are that much more easily corrupted. Because they have no foundation to return to. They have no You've taken away from them their source, their essence, their being. 
to be or not to be, that is the question. If you take being away from it, all you're left with is not being. Just imagine living with it, with that feeling of no foundation, nothing, nothing, there's nothing holding you up. There's nothing under. So, so what kind of anxiety, what kind of fear, what kind of emptiness does that bring to your life? And of course, where there's emptiness, nature abhors a vacuum. So people try to fill that emptiness. And they'll try to fill that emptiness however they can. And because the ego is clever and subtle, the ego is not going to admit to you, well, of course, we're exploiting that emptiness and you know we're partly we're, we're responsible for creating that feeling of emptiness inside of you. The ego is not going to do that. So what, what is the ego going to do? It's either going to blame you and create self-loathing. You're worthless. You're meaningless. You're pointless. You're useless. Nobody loves you. Nobody will ever love you. Anybody who's ever suffered from any type of addiction at all knows all about the voices, that inner voice of self-loathing. Oh, and or... The ego is going to blame someone out there, going to blame the world, circumstances, dumb luck, uh, the government, society. It's going to blame this group or that group, Republicans, Democrats, Trump, whatever. So just as you're trying to accumulate things, whatever those things are, or experiences, trying to accumulate experiences, trying to fill the void because of the... the uh, You're also going to be warring with entities out there in the hopes that changing those circumstances or somehow getting getting control over them will somehow ease the anxiety, ease the fear, and create the comfort and security within yourself. But neither of those activities, neither of those activities will produce that which we seek on the path. Neither of those activities will restore the foundation of the four pillars. Only being can do that. Only being. And that great rebellion takes place inside, not outside. Um, Christos just posted a, um, a comment here. Um, that I feel I'm going to read it and then I'll respond to it. I really like this live stream. I am troubled with lust. I observed its movement in me in a meditative moment of deep presence. When a woman, when a woman pasted by that, when a woman pasted by, that's when I came in contact with Gnostic teachings. But I feel that restricting, denying it doesn't work. I tried it. Sorry for the long comment. So, Christos, you're not alone. Uh, lust is... Lust and fear are the two toughest egos that we will face on the path. 
um, lust in particular, lust is actually the mother of all egos. Because when we contemplate lust, what lust is, desire, craving and aversion, um, we can describe all other egos, all other egos in terms of desire. So for example, the desire for comfort and security is fear. The desire for fame and fortune is pride and greed. Uh, the desire for to be to be full, to be satisfied, well, that's gluttony. So it's all desire, it's all lust. Lust for money, lust for fame, lust for fortune, you know, lust lust for notoriety, lust for comfort and security, lust for uh, um, self-absorption, self-importance, validation, lust, lust, lust. It's all lust. Lust, because it's craving and aversion in a physiological sense, lust can be described as the feeling of being full or the feeling of being emptied. And whether you're a man or you're a woman, we don't you you can use your imagination. We don't have to elaborate on how both of those are legitimate physiological manifestations of lust depending on the circumstances. And the reason why lust is so powerful with us and why we struggle so much with it is because of the nature of the sexual energy, the sexual force. The sexual force uh, must flow. It will flow. It will find a way to flow. Um, and that's why abstinence in and of itself um, is not a, uh, a very sustainable uh, model for many people because the sexual force, when it doesn't flow, when it's not allowed to flow, uh, stagnates. And anything that stagnates in nature becomes putrid, becomes wretched. So there are exercises that we can perform as uh, bachelors and bachelorettes, single single people, we can perform pranayama, for example. And if you're not familiar with pranayama, um, we can pull it up for you right here. Uh, here. There are exercises that we can perform which allows us to... <clears throat> um, circulate the sexual force oh actually if i do that you'll lose the link won't you here i can take this and i believe i should be able to just cut and paste this into the chat okay so you have the link there in the chat now and then you can read this article at your leisure and uh by all means practice the control of the breath and the conscious visualization and the conscious movement of uh, prana, prana through the body. Prana is also known as chi. It's a sexual force. And um, 
you can practice this as a single person. Now, of course, as, as a couple, um, the, the practice goes beyond pranayama. As a, as a couple, we can practice uh, white tantra, uh, sexual alchemy, which is the next level, and it's quite a level, and there are levels and levels of alchemy. Anybody who's ever practiced white tantra knows that working with a sexual force really is like working with fire in alchemy or or a forge it's um it is a uh <clears throat> it's something that it's a skill it's a skill and at the beginning it can get out of control right the fire can 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 rage out of control and the sexual force can flow um, in uh, unpredictable ways, let's say. So at the beginning, yeah, um, right, Christos. At the beginning, it's challenging, and we should take it slow. And uh, if you can find some guidance, if you need some guidance, we're here to help, um, but the real guidance comes from within. And when you comprehend what alchemy is, the transmutation of the lead of ego into the gold of the human soul, and because lust is the mother of all egos, and because lust is intricately connected to the sexual force, and lust wants to degenerate the sexual force and make it flow negatively, the opposite of lust is love. That's when the sexual force flows positively. And we've often said that the easiest way to comprehend sexual alchemy and white tantra is to meditate on the phrase, what it means to make love. You are literally making love if, if medieval alchemists were said to be making gold out of lead, then the true, authentic alchemist, the, the, the sexual alchemist, is making love out of lust. That's where the expression making love comes. You're literally making love. And while to hear that intellectually sounds maybe, you know, kind of trite or something that belongs in a Hallmark greeting card, when you experience it, you will, you will know what we're talking about here. You will know the difference. You will feel the difference, for example, between any... any animal sexuality you've ever experienced with your with your partner no matter how beautiful or pleasurable or fantastic or explosive or mind-blowing it was nothing absolutely nothing you've ever experienced sexually can compare with the genuine esoteric mystical 
metaphysical scientific act of making love. When you experience that, you will, you will, we're not saying you should be expecting some sort of whiz bang, you know, psychedelic experience. No, no, no. It's not like that. Most mystical experiences are not like that. People, um, especially in the new age and the people who take psychedelics and drugs and whatever, they have altogether a wrong approach to mysticism and esotericism and experiences. The, the truly deep and truly powerful and meaningful mystical experience is not the one that blows your mind, despite the fact that we have shared at least one of those experiences on our blog. The mystical experience that matters to us each and every day is are the, are the mundane moments in our life, each and every moment and each and every day. The ones that, if we're not paying attention, they will pass us by. We will miss them. To be or not to be, that is the question. We can't go through life having whiz-bang, you know, fireworks going off in our consciousness all the time. Um, you know, we can't be, you know, off you know, going around the rings of Saturn and flying through, you know, the, the stars and whatever, 24 hours a day. That's because that's not what mystical experience is. That does not, that's not what it means to be a mystic. That's not what it means to be an esotericist, to be someone on the path. What it means to be someone on the path is to be someone who is being, to be or not to be. To be is to be present, to be calm, to be relaxed, to be attentive, watchful within and without, and bringing into the world that which we are meant to bring into world, into the world, and to receive from the world that which we are meant to receive. And in that, that alchemical union with our partner that giving and receiving it's 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 a dance and it's a dance of energy and it's a dance of the flow and it's a dance of the words begin to escape us it's, it really is like if you can visualize a lava lamp, but it's this alchemy, this, this, this alchemical union and this transmutation, this transformation which takes place. And out of that is born something. And what is born out of that is literally love and the container of that love, the vessel of love our solar bodies, the human soul. And to experience that is something which is deep and profound and meaningful and personal, 
shared, mind you, to one degree or another with your partner. And when you experience that form of sexuality, believe me, lust will still be there. And uh, lust will, will uh, try, you know, to tempt you. Um, but it will become, how shall we say, less and less of a problem, less and less of a temptation, the more and more you practice white Tantra. And the better you become at it, the more skilled you become at working with it. So Donna G says, kind of makes me think of the fifth element, she was love. Actually, the fifth element is the Divine Mother. The fifth element is uh, the sexual force, uh, the ether, right? We have wind, uh, sorry, air, water, fire, and earth, and ether. Ether is the element which contains all the other elements. Well, that element is the etheric, um, the etheric body, the uh, etheric plane, or the vital body, the vital plane, and that's the ninth sphere on the tree of life, and that's that's a sexual force. That's the divine mother. So that's that whole the fifth element, that whole um, uh, film. That's what all of that is allegorizing. And yes, uh, she's uh, called Lilu, and she's the supreme being. She's the perfect being, and she's the only defense that Earth has against evil. And it's interesting that she has the power to turn evil to stone and turns it into a moon. Uh, hopefully, I haven't given away the end. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, I think the movie is old enough that we've all seen it. But anyway, um, it's there's another example of a science fiction property which just encodes all of this uh, metaphysical um, uh, esoteric truth in what is for anybody else all intents and purposes just another popcorn science fiction movie kind of half comedy half action science fiction film um, by Luc Besson and company and if we spoke to Luc Besson and we revealed to him all of the deep esoteric meaning in the, uh, in the film, he might say we're crazy. He might say that we're re re reading way too much into it. Or he might not. He might have consciously put, it, put uh, those symbols into it. We can't be sure. Or the screenwriter. I don't know who the screenwriter was. Well, um, we're just over 90 minutes. Um, we haven't had any uh, what are called super chats on on um, on uh, YouTube. I don't know if anybody on YouTube, um, do you see an option to do super chats? I'm just curious. Um, if there's if no one else wants to ask a question or make a comment that you want me to read in the stream, then we might we might consider wrapping up because this is just the first time we're doing this and we had no real plan. We just wanted to make sure everything worked. Nope. Question marks. You don't see anything to uh, do super chats. I don't know how that works. Maybe you can only do that once you're monetized or something. I don't know. I, it's not, it's not that important for me. Um, I'm just curious because don't see super chat option. Okay. 
Um, we'll have to look into that. Maybe it's something that um, maybe it's something that uh, we can only do. So thank you, Donna. Um, now for the future, do you, is this a good time? Is this a good time, or is it? Would it? Or is, was would? Is there a better day or time when this might work for you? Um, those in the chat, or should we just uh, stick to this and see how it goes and keep? Um, I don't know if I lost. Uh, if we lost our friends from um, the Philippines, Roy. I don't know if you're uh, if you're still here. Yes, yes, yes for me. Okay, all right. Well, listen, let's. Um, we might do another uh, another one of these. We have to uh, come to some sort of. Um, we want to be able to have open and frank. Uh, discussions on these topics for um, yeah Christos says maybe a bit earlier uh, Christos where are you oh and Roy's here as well Christos where are you in the world oh, while he's answering that um, because there are um, there are messages that some people for some reason I can't see other people's chats Oh, well, that's strange. Eduardo, can you see other people's chats? Oh, well, oh, Christos is in Greece. Okay, that well, <laughs> that certainly makes sense, given your name. Um, so what time is it there? That must be late for you now. Must be what, you're six hours, seven hours ahead? So um, Donna... Can you see people's chats from YouTube? Can you see other chats from YouTube, Donna? Because you might, it's probably just the chats from Facebook that you're not seeing. Nope. Eduardo says only Donna's chat. Huh. So Donna, can you see Eduardo? Can you see Eduardo's chats? Christo says, I can't see other people commenting as well. It's nearly 5 a.m. in the morning. Ah, oh, so yeah, no, it's it's very early for you, isn't it? Um so Donna says, yes. Donna says, see that I saw, but for some reason I can't see anyone else's. Hmm. Not sure what to make of that. Um, I, of course, I'm I'm kind of um, hamstrung. I don't know if uh, I can't really see. Um, yeah, I don't. I I can't see what you guys see, and so. Okay, sorry, that was type. So my guess is anybody who's in YouTube, you can see YouTube uh, chats that people are putting in YouTube, but you won't be able to see um, 
anybody on Facebook because it's a different platform. But here's what I can do, right? I can actually do this. Um, so this chat of Christos, you know, this is what I should have done is I should have put this on, on, um, on like that. Right. And then I can do this. I can do this that way as well. Right. So I have the ability to, to highlight, um, Yeah, see, Christian's popped up because I I popped it up. So I have the ability to do that. Yes. Um, so, again, this is going to be a learning process, I think, for everyone. Um, <laughs> not least of all myself. I've, I've participated um, in plenty of um, uh, live streams, but never, obviously, never this way. This is the first time... Yeah, okay. Oh, that's interesting, eh? Hmm. So Christo says, I saw some stuff from Roy and Melissa and Kimberly. Um, now Roy's, but that's funny because Roy's on YouTube, right? Okay. So now it says, yeah, I just saw from Donna. Okay, hello. So your guys' guess is as good as mine at this point. Um, we'll have to just uh, go with this uh, platform that uh, we signed up with allows us to simulcast, obviously, to Facebook and YouTube. And we can do one more, and we will probably make the third one Twitch. Um, we'll have to... We'll have to um, um, you know, uh, Donna, uh, D, um, from your photo, we thought so, but we didn't want to say anything just in case <laughs> we, were, we were wrong on that because <laughs> your photo is quite small on here, right? So, <laughs> um, so uh, well, thank you, everyone, for uh, joining us uh, this evening. And uh, we hope that you got something valuable out of it. In the future, we will uh, plan ahead and have some more, uh, maybe some more interesting things to talk about some ahead of time. We were just literally winging it, just feeling it, just going where we needed to go. Um, but also, uh, as we were saying, we will probably have to do different types of live streams for different audiences because we have um uh no uses uh we have the alm of life we have we want to try to reach out to different groups and different audiences and kind of speak to their language and speak to what matters to them so we might do this uh several times a week um at different times for different uh purposes but we'll have to see how that goes it depends on our own energy level and our, our own uh, schedule. Um, but we have a lot that we can talk about. Um, and the other thing also is that we have to look at the possibility of having guests 
coming on and participating and doing this type more of a podcast type of discussion uh, format. Um, we probably will have to do that um, for Peapod Life um, and some of the other aspects of the Atlas project, which, you know, you you may or may not be uh, aware of um, the things that we're involved with. Um, like if we share this, this is our um, our webpage for um, Peapod Life. And um, um, our best community project, which is our This is our, um, our, our indoor ecosystem um, community lifestyle uh, development that we're trying to get off the ground. We're still seeking our uh, financial partner to uh, step up to the plate. Um, but, uh, you know, this is one of several different social enterprises. This we envision um, will be over 60% affordable housing. So, um, and as part of this process of setting this up, we will be um, <clears throat> doing a human impact study and uh, we will be incorporating our U-Method uh, technology, which is the um, self-observation um, application that um, we've developed with a uh, very close personal friend of ours. Um, that's um, well, that you can learn about at umethod.com. And, um, there's a little explainer video here that will walk you through that. So, and then there's the Alm of Life. And if you've gone to, uh, Atlas, the Atlas project, there's an hour long video that will walk you through this video here, um, the alm of life and, and how that affects all of these different properties that, um, you can see here, these are all projects, aspects of the Atlas project. Um, so everything that you see here, um, you know, we talked about self-actualization and bringing into the world that which you are meant to bring into the world. Everything that you see here um, uh, let's see. This is our project, right? This is and this might not be the sum total of it. Um, so when we say that we have more to do and we want to do more live streams and everything else, indeed we do, but there are different levels that people are at and different audiences, um, different audiences uh, have to hear the message in, at, at different levels presented to them. So. Um, we're not sure exactly how we can go about doing that with all of these different things and incorporating them. Um, 
in that way. That's something that we're going to have to learn as we go on and feel it out, so to speak, because you really don't know until we do something like this and have at least a few people and get some feedback. But, um, and then of course, following our heart, right? We, we follow, we, we, we follow the guidance of the logos in this case. So, um, but listen, thank you all for, uh, coming out. Thank you all for participating and, um, keep an eye out on, you know, if you subscribe, to our channel on YouTube, or obviously if you follow us on uh, Facebook, you will know when the next one is going to be. And hopefully we'll give you more than an hour's notice <laughs> next time. <laughs> but most likely next week at around 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock in the evening, um, you can be sure that we'll be doing this again. So thank you all. Um, have a good night. Uh, God bless. And I guess we'll be we'll be signing off. Inverential peace.